Well, please remain standing as we wrap up our reading by looking at verses 20 or 32 through 54 of chapter 27 of Matthew, the record of the crucifixion of Christ. Matthew writes, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they had come, came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, This was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we come in this study to the apex of history. We come to the very center point, the fulcrum upon which history tilts as we consider Jesus Christ, God and man, being punished, being sacrificed, that our sins might be forgiven. We pray that as we consider these things, Lord, as we look at the record here of what is, what is happening, we pray that you would remind us of the great grace that you have shown to us through Jesus Christ, and we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, on this Good Friday evening, we're going to pick up the story that we began 
on Sunday that we began to relate a calculated, cold-blooded plot against an enemy, an innocent person by his enemies. Not just any plot and not just any person, but the one truly innocent, righteous, holy, incarnate Son of God was betrayed into the hands of wicked men, dragged before a contrived court, condemned for nothing, and killed in the most torturous way available to the system. But it is much more than that, isn't it? The death of Jesus of Nazareth, as I just mentioned, is the center point of the great redemptive plan of Almighty God to redeem sinners to Himself, to rescue us, to rescue everyone who will come to Him in faith, to rescue them from their sin, to rescue them from their bondage to sin, to rescue them from the coming punishment for sin, and to give to them eternal life. Through the sacrifice of Christ, a sacrifice the only sacrifice that was able to obtain forgiveness of sins for others and to merit the granting of eternal life. Last Sunday, on Palm Sunday, we began to look at the murder of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, by looking at the first act of this drama of redemption, what we call triumph and treachery. And now we're coming to act two as Jesus finds himself forsaken by man and God. And as you've heard the readings tonight that were done, as you think of the other gospels that relate the other parts of the story, there, is, there are so many things to focus on. But remember, uh, in this series, I've chosen to focus on the, the events uh, as they occurred. The, the overall sweep of the narrative of what happened to Jesus. Well, we're going to then continue on that uh, trek through the events uh, that happened. The events are recorded for us, as I mentioned, in all four of the Gospels. Each one focuses on different aspects of the events. Each includes details that the others leave out. But together, they give not a contradictory set of events, but together they give a full-orbed record of Jesus' death and resurrection. And what I want to do on this Good Friday, then, is to sort of combine all of the records of the events of the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Christ and give them to you in, in what will hopefully be one clear picture and to focus on the, the extent of the abandonment, the rejection that Christ went through in the hours leading up to and including his crucifixion. Isaiah gives us a bit of a prologue for that way back in his prophecy in that chapter we sang a song from as we sang stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Uh, part of that prophecy, here's what Isaiah says about Christ and about the, the rejection that he would suffer. He says that he was despised and rejected by men, despised, um, esteemed, I'm sorry, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
He was oppressed and afflicted. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah says. He has put him to grief. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. This evening, we are at the end of the Passion Week. These are the things we're going to be looking at that happened to Jesus in the 18 hours leading up to his death. And though we're sitting here in the the evening hours at the end of this day, by this time on Good Friday, all of the events of the day will have already taken place. They began in the overnight hours of Thursday into Friday and concluded at sundown on Friday evening. Through our readers that read our portions of Scripture this morning, we've read most of the account of the events in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's where we're going to sort of base our look here at the murder of Jesus. And we're going to organize our thoughts around seven words, seven verbs. And we'll begin with how these last 18 hours started, and that was with the fact that Jesus was betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed by a friend. Of course, that's Judas. And Judas, remember, Matthew 26, 14 through 16 records, uh, was one of the twelve. He was not just a follower. He was a disciple. He was a friend of Christ. He was one of the twelve. And yet he was a thief. He was a traitor. According to John 6, verse 70, he was a devil. And he had gone to the chief priests secretly and and asked them, what are you willing to give me to deliver him, to deliver Jesus up to you? And they agreed to give him 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ into their hands. The modern value of that was somewhere between $150 and $300 and certainly intended to be an insult regarding the value that they actually placed on Jesus. It was a cost of the lowest type of slave given to betray the eternal Son of God. And surely Jesus was despised and rejected by Judas. Jesus at this point had had his last supper with the disciples in the upper room during which, remember, he revealed to them that one of them was going to betray him. One of you sitting here with me, he said, will betray me. And John records that Jesus very explicitly identifies who it would be, that it would be Judas. And then Jesus dismisses Judas to go do what Judas was going to do. Jesus said in John 13, 27, what you do Do quickly. A reminder that we're going to see a couple of more times through this and would in other places if we had time to go through all of this. A reminder that Jesus, through these final hours, is in as much control of the situation as he had always been throughout his life. He dismisses Judas to go knowing that he is going to betray him to death. A cowardly betrayal. And Judas goes. He goes into the night to fulfill his part of the deal. 
And Jesus then, at the end of the meal with his disciples, he leaves the upper room. They go out of the the city, across the small valley there, and into a small garden of olive trees where Jesus had gone many times with his disciples, uh, a garden known as the Garden of the Oil Press, or Gethsemane. And uh, while he is there, he encourages them to stay awake and to, to pray with him. And while he is there, Jesus in the record, is, is struck by what lies ahead of him. And he prays, as we read this evening, three times to his Father that if it be possible, that this cup, that these events that he was to go through, that they might be taken away. But, Jesus said, not my will, that's not what's important, but your will be done. The will of the Father was paramount. And Jesus was always and ever submitted to that will. After the third time of going away and praying and coming back and finding his disciples asleep, he speaks kindly to them. Matthew records Jesus saying, Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And then comes Judas again. This time, not alone into the night, but out of the night with a great crowd, Matthew says, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. John, in his gospel, tells us that this multitude was made up of a Roman cohort. John 18.3 talks about that, which could have been several hundred men coming to arrest Jesus. And along with them, also members of the temple police are with them, this mob coming to arrest this one man. And Judas comes, and as he had arranged, he walks up to Jesus and greets him. He greets him with a kiss, which was the agreed-upon sign. And Jesus, by that simple, typical greeting of the day, was betrayed by one of his friends into the hands of those who would have him dead. And just as Jesus had said to Judas earlier, what Judas, uh, what you do, do quickly, here he responds, friend, how that must have hurt. Jesus would say, friend, do what you came to do. Significantly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all identify Judas the same way as Judas, one of the twelve. Just to reinforce this to us, to to make us think back to the the prophecies of the Old Testament and to to remind us that this is not a, a stranger who has betrayed him, but a friend turned betrayer. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And the events to follow are all set in motion when Jesus is betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed by a friend, but then he was abandoned by his disciples. And this just needs really a brief mention, uh, but it's important in, in bringing out this idea of how Jesus was alone, how he was being separated out from from Everyone. Important in bringing out how Jesus was forsaken by man. Not just by him who was a devil, who was to be his betrayer, but by those who had stuck with Jesus until now. Matthew tells us 
in verse 56 of chapter 26 that when the guards arrested Jesus, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus was acquainted with grief, we learn. And as sad as that was, it was no surprise. Because, again, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Last week we looked at Zechariah 9, but in Zechariah 13, we are also told that this was going to happen. And Jesus even reminded his disciples of this very prophecy back in verse 31 of chapter 26. Well, we read this, Then Jesus said to them, to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written in Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Matthew again records that all this took place, he says, that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. So all of the disciples abandoned Jesus in the darkest hour, in his darkest hour, in the time of of greatest human need, his closest companions scatter like sheep. And the next time we hear of them as a group together, it is after the resurrection, and we read that they are hiding for fear of the Jews. All of the disciples abandoned them, abandoned him. But one of them went further and denied that he even knew Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus was thirdly denied by the chief disciple. Of course, this is Peter, who, remember, when Jesus told the disciples earlier that I just quoted here that they would abandon him, Peter sprung up and said, not me. They might, they all might, but I won't. I never will. I will never fall away. I will die for you if I need to. And you know that Jesus said, Peter, before this night is over, You will deny that you even know me, not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter did exactly that. We know the record of it in Matthew 26. Mercedes read that for us this evening. And when Peter realized it, when he realized that he had done just what he swore that he would not do, he went out and wept bitterly. So different from Judas when he realized what he had done. So Jesus was betrayed by his friend. He was abandoned by his disciples. And after being arrested and led away by this unlikely mob of Jews and Gentiles, he is denied by the chief disciple. Well, after Jesus was arrested, continuing our look at this uh, narrative, then the process of dealing with him begins. Now they've got him, what do they do with him? Because remember, the Jews do not just want Jesus arrested, they want Jesus dead, and they want him dead as soon as possible. And so the trial of Jesus begins immediately, in the middle of the night. Although I think to refer to it as a trial requires the broadest sense of the word uh, so to be understood. Remember, this is taking place, as I said, in the middle of the night, and it's going to continue through the morning. And during this time, these hours, Jesus is going to appear six times 
before five different groups and individuals over the next eight hours or so. And we can divide this all into to two groups. Basically, it's the Jews, the religious leaders, and the Romans, the civil authorities. First, we're going to look at the Jews as we look at our fourth point, and that is that Jesus was falsely accused by the religious leaders. We saw these last Sunday and mentioned them and put them in the category of the treacherous enemies of Jesus, remember? These are the ones who really wanted Jesus killed. We talked about the reasons on Sunday. These are the ones who have plotted. These are the ones who have paid the blood money to Judas Iscariot. They are the ones that are are moving this along. And as we will see, they are not about to be stopped in their quest to murder Jesus by anything as trivial as the fact that Jesus is absolutely innocent of any of the charges they try to bring against him. After he's arrested in the garden, he is taken first to a man called Annas, who's referred to as the high priest. After that, he's going to be sent to a man named Caiaphas, who is also called the high priest. How is it that they are both referred to in that way? Well, it has to do with the Roman government and their rules and their their actions. Annas was the true high priest. He was the high priest under Israel's law, under the Jewish law. Caiaphas, on the other hand, was the official... Roman Empire approved high priest that they had put in place. But whether it is because of Annas's position as the, the true high priest or because simply that his palace was very near where Jesus would have been brought into the city after being arrested, either way, Jesus is first brought to Annas. John is the one who tells us about that. And Annas conducts a very brief interview with Jesus, asks him about his disciples and about his teaching, but, but very briefly, and he soon sends Jesus on to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the official high priest. Why does he do that? Well, he does that, and it's a very important fact in all of this, that the Jews, because of the fact that they are under uh, the, the rule of the Roman Empire, the Jews could not execute anyone legally. So if if charges against Jesus were to be brought to the Roman civil authorities, they would have to come from the Roman Empire approved high priest who was Caiaphas. So Jesus is now brought to Caiaphas and to the council, the Sanhedrin, the temple court, at least as many as they could gather so late in the night a court that would be ruled over by Caiaphas, the high priest. And it is here that we really see the the desperation and the the phoniness of the religious leaders and their, their desire at all costs to see Jesus put to death. Matthew picks it up for us in verse 59 of chapter 26. He says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So this council, 71 members of the Sanhedrin, along with the chief priests, are assembled together, again, or as many as they could get together in the middle of the night, with, a, with quite a nefarious purpose. 
they were seeking false witnesses. Not, not even a pretense of trying to find real ones. It was evident to them that they wouldn't and they couldn't. Have you ever heard of a kangaroo court? Definition is judicial proceedings that deny proper procedure in the name of expediency. That describes this court to a T. The outcome is determined in advance, and the court proceeds by leaps. That's where the kangaroo aspect comes from, to get to it. This is the body that is trying Jesus. But verse 60 tells us that even their false witnesses couldn't agree on the the charges that they were bringing. They couldn't agree on anything. They needed to have two witnesses according to Jewish law, but they couldn't find them. But finally they do. Finally they find two who agree on a charge, a report, a false report as it turns out, a perversion of something that Jesus did say. They twist it and they say this is what Jesus said. In verse 61, if you happen to still be there, they said, these two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. What Jesus actually said, and it's found in John chapter 2, was that if they were to destroy the temple of God, Jesus said, I will raise it up in three days. And John explicitly tells us that the temple that Jesus was referring to was the temple of his body, which they were about to destroy, and which would be raised after three days. But when Jesus doesn't answer them on their charge, the high priest says in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now when he says that, I adjure you by the living God, he's basically by the power of his position, putting Jesus under an oath and requiring that Jesus answer under oath. And so he does. And when he answers the way that he does, in verse 64, Jesus said to them, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When Jesus answers that way, He identifies himself with the great Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who, if you remember from times we've looked at that, who is divine, who is God. Therefore, the high priests and the Sanhedrin have what they wanted, although it's a false trumped-up charge of, of blasphemy against Jesus, and they sentence him, as we read, to die for it. Now, it would have been a true charge. It would have been a good charge. It would have been a charge that would hold water that Jesus identifies himself with the Son of Man from Daniel 7, except for the fact that he is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, a fact he will prove incontrovertibly when he rises from the dead on Sunday. In verses 67 and 68, then, the temple court of the Jews spit in the face of Jesus, the highest insult that they could give. They mock him. They beat him. Here's the revered institution of the Sanhedrin, reduced to a mob by their hatred of Jesus. As the sun rises on Friday morning, 
the opening verses of chapter 27 tells us that when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So now the sun's up, the day has started, and now they gather together again more properly. Now with a quorum, all the chief priests are there in an attempt to give some semblance of respectability to this. The whole trial of Jesus by the Sanhedrin was a travesty of justice, of their own justice system, of their own temple court rules and laws. There were violations in this this abounding Violations of the laws and the rules of the Sanhedrin. Just a a few to mention. The Sanhedrin was not allowed to meet at night. According to Mishnah Sanhedrin 4.1. The Mishnah is a, a written collection of Jewish oral tradition come down through time. It said that the Sanhedrin, that court, could not meet at night. They just had. Also, a guilty verdict in a death penalty case could not be handed down on the day of the trial. Mishnah Sanhedrin 5.5 says that. They had violated that. Obviously, they had brought false witnesses against Christ. Fourth, Jesus was not guilty of blasphemy, evil speaking, defaming, injury to the name of God. And fifthly, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to meet in a capital case on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. So Jesus was falsely accused, he was falsely tried, he was falsely condemned by the Jewish religious leaders. He continues to be separated. He was betrayed by a friend, he was abandoned by the disciples, he was denied by the chief disciples, and he was falsely accused by the religious leaders. Fifthly, he was acquitted and condemned by the civil authorities, the Roman authorities. Acquitted and condemned. It's an odd pair of verbs there. Let's see how that works out. The Jews, having condemned Jesus and having a charge, albeit a false one, against him, now they turn Jesus over to the civil authorities, to the Romans. Remember, the Jews could not execute anyone, so they take him to the ones who can't. We often focus in in this on the mocking and the beatings and the the cruelly, or that were cruelly administered during this phase of Jesus' sufferings, and rightly so, and they were horrible, and they were, again, fulfilling prophecy. But let's look at the, the travesty legally of what went on. Remember, Jesus' trial before the Jewish religious authority had been a farce. We just saw that. But it had been done in three phases. There was Annas, and there was Caiaphas before the Sanhedrin, twice, in the night and again in the morning. And his civil trial is likewise going to be in three phases. The first is that Jesus is brought before a man called Pontius Pilate. So now we're out of the realm of the religious authorities and we're into the civil authorities, the Jews. I'm sorry, the Romans. Pontius Pilate, he was the prefect or the governor of that region of Judea. Now, for the Romans... Of course, Jesus claiming to be God or any other religious charge wouldn't really affect them that much. So listen to what the mob does. The charge against Jesus is what? Blasphemy, right? 
chapter 26, verses 65 and 66. But when they bring Jesus to Pilate, Luke 23, 1 says that they began to accuse him to, to, the, to the Romans, saying, listen to this, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They curiously bring up a whole new charge against Jesus, also a false charge, that Jesus was seditious, that he was subversive, that he was stirring up the people against the government. Of course, if anything, Jesus had done the opposite when he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And while Jesus was a king, he was not, in a, not a king in a way that would bring a, a threat against the Romans. John records Jesus explaining that to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And after hearing the charges and after questioning Jesus, Pilate comes out and he says, I find no fault in him. No basis for any charge. There's the decision of the Roman government represented by Pilate. But Luke adds for us that the crowd didn't like that, and so the crowds of the Jews keep pushing. He says they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So Galilee in the north, all the way down to Jerusalem. So Jesus is, is doing this. He is giving this teaching. But Pilate says, well, well, wait a minute. He has an idea. Wait. He's from Galilee? Oh, that's Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Let Herod deal with this. And again, the crowds go with them up to Herod. The Jewish leaders are wanting to personally supervise this and see this all the way through. So the first phase is before Pontius Pilate. The second phase now is before Herod, Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee. And Luke 23.8 tells us, oh, that Herod just loves that because Herod is so pleased to have Jesus come before him because he wanted to see Jesus. For the same reason that so many people want to see Jesus today, he wanted to see a show. He wanted to see a miracle. And Herod asks Jesus many questions, but Jesus, Luke tells us, doesn't have an answer for any of them or doesn't answer any of them. And all the while, the chief priests and the rulers of the people, Luke 23.10 says, are vehemently accusing him. And Herod comes to the same conclusion that Pilate did, that I don't have anything to accuse him of. So after he and his soldiers mock Jesus and dress him in a, a gorgeous robe, they send him back to Pilate. And that's the third phase. Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate again. Now we're probably getting on here to about 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning as the Jews and Jesus return to Pilate. Again, the Jews are in tow to, to see this through. Luke's account is really the most detailed here, and he says that Pilate summoned the chief priest and the rulers of the people. Let's, let's get them in on this. And in Luke 23, 14... 
He said to them, Pilate again says, you, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him, as flog him, beat him, and release him. No, they say. They keep insisting. They keep stirring up the crowd, the Jews do. And the record in Luke and John is that Pilate keeps coming back to them and saying, I find no fault in him. There's no case here. And Luke says that Pilate had a custom, and we read it here as well, that during the feast of Passover he would release a prisoner to them to sort of keep himself in the good graces of the Jewish people. And he offers them a choice of Jesus, whom he can't find anything wrong with, and this other who was a known and convicted insurrectionist and murderer, the Bible says, a notorious prisoner. Surely Pilate must have thought they'll choose Jesus to be released than this one. But no. Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead. And that's significant. Again, it points out very clearly that, that even the non-God-fearing Roman government at all points from two different governors find nothing worthy of death in Jesus. In fact, no fault at all. Proof of the innocence of Christ and it points us very clearly to my statement that this was not simply a crucifixion, not merely an execution, but this was a calculated murder. And, by the way, it was the fulfillment of John's statement, one of the first that he opens his book with, when he says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. In Matthew 27, verse, verse 24, then we read this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing... But rather that a riot was, be, was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus has been betrayed, abandoned, denied, falsely accused, acquitted, and condemned. And then we come to the last two points. And that is first, that he was crucified by men. Of course, that was the goal of his enemies all along. The joy of his treacherous enemies that we spoke of last Sunday. He was taken outside of the city and subjected, as I said, to one of the most torturous, horrendous deaths that were available at the time. Significantly, very significantly, a death that the Jews considered to be a cursed death. Cursed is everyone, it said, who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21.21, Galatians 3.13. So they take him out in the record that we read this morning say that says that they then crucified him. But do you notice how little the Bible really says about the crucifixion itself. The words of the gospel on the method of Christ's death is this, and they crucified him. There's more said about the physical aspects of crucifixion 
in the prophecies of the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. Certainly it was horrendous. Certainly it was torturous. It was designed to be the most of those two things that it could be. But the Bible doesn't dwell on that. It doesn't dwell on the the blood and the pain and the physiological effects of death by crucifixion. It's taken men today, doctors, to write about it. And Mel Gibson to make a movie about it. But the Bible doesn't. It focuses on the necessity of it. It says it focuses on the purpose of his death and on the redeeming power of his death, on the purpose of his death, on the substitutionary nature of his death as a sacrifice, not on the gory details of the suffering. But that is going to bring us to the last of our verbs this evening. And I submit to you, today that the reason that the Bible doesn't focus so much on the physical torture of Christ's death is because that there is something more important going on. And that is the focus. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus die if man was to be forgiven. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus die as he died if he was to become a curse for us so that we would not be cursed. But there was something else There was something more that was absolutely necessary, Christian, if your sins were to be forgiven. Jesus was first forsaken by men. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was despised. He was rejected. He was murdered. He was betrayed by a friend. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was denied by the chief disciple. He was falsely accused by the religious leaders. He was acquitted and condemned by the civil authorities, and he was crucified by men. And in all of these, he rarely answered. He never defended himself. But in those last hours, on that Good Friday, as he hung between heaven and earth, belonging to both and belonging to neither, the gospel records seven times that Jesus spoke. Luke records three of them, John records three of them, and the other is recorded by both Matthew and Mark. We read it this evening, let me read it again, in Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Our last point is that Jesus was forsaken by the one that you would think would never forsake him. He was forsaken by the Father. His Father. God. Some have said, well, yes, in his agony, Jesus at this point as he is near death felt like God had forsaken him. But the father could never forsake his son, not for an instant. But beloved, the reason that Jesus felt like the father had forsaken him, had turned his back on him, was because the father had turned his back on him, had forsaken him. He turned his back on his only begotten son and laid on him two things. One is every sin of every person who would ever believe in him. 
Isaiah in chapter 53 said that he lay, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the first thing he laid on Christ. The second thing that he laid on Christ, more properly that he poured on Christ, was the wrath that of necessity comes with that sin. The, the punishment for all of those sins that God had put on Jesus All of that wrath was poured out on the sinless Son of God in those short moments as He bore not His own sin, He had none, but the sin of those who would trust in Him. And that is key. Jesus was the sacrifice offered up in your place, Christian. Because you see, if God had not forsaken his son, he would have to forsake you. But because he did reject his son as a loathsome thing, he can accept you. He can welcome you and I. And if Jesus had not cried out, my God, my God, he could never have cried out, It is finished. Because redemption was not complete until he paid for your sins. That was redemption. He drank every drop of the wrath of God on that cross for you who trust him. He was forsaken. And he did redeem you so that to everyone who believes in him, he now gives the gift of eternal life, full forgiveness of sins, perfect righteousness put to their account, and the promise of heaven. And so the monstrous plan of men and the redemptive plan of God came together on Good Friday. And through the sovereign and all-wise working of God, The murder of the Messiah means salvation for us. And in a final notice that Christ was never out of control of the situation, even at his death, we read that after it was all completed, that Jesus yielded up his spirit. Other translations say he dismissed his spirit. He chose the moment of his death. Not the Romans and not the Jews. And when he did, the world was changed forever. And when he was dead, and yes, he really died, the soldier's spear confirmed it. When he died, he was taken down from the cross, and he was laid in a tomb that was donated by another. And there he lay until, until the glorious events of Sunday morning.